chapter 3, verses 1 to 20. For some reason, I keep on having trouble with this. You're going to have to bear with me up here. All right. Now I know what I need for Christmas. I've been putting off my new iPad. I want you to know until January. You have to bear with me. I might have to read it off there. See, nothing's happening. Oh, wait, something happened. Thank you. Okay. Wow, this is getting worse and worse. Very slow, very slow. Are you looking for the scripture verses or your, your nah, I'm looking for my logos. I do apologize, everybody. No. I think I got it. No. I'm getting close. Count ten backwards. Count no slower than that. All right, I apologize. Okay. Acts 1, chapter 3. Verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raising him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people utterly astounded ran together in one place. As I just lost my place. I'm having trouble. My IT person's not here. It's getting worse. Tell my phone, huh? No, I'd rather not. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power of piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. You denied the holy and the righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And in his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. 
And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, God, that you've opened up our minds to understand the scriptures, Father. I just pray, Father God, that your Holy Spirit bless us, Lord. As we go through this text tonight, Father God, that we draw closer and we draw closer to you, Father God. Let us have understanding, Father God. Teach us, Father God, the profound mysteries of the faith, this truth, and this truth alone that sets men free, Father God. Grant us to understand the power of the Holy Spirit and the word of truth we ask. In Christ's name, amen. Times of refreshing. Do we have that up there? That is our title, Times of Refreshing. As we spoke on this text a couple weeks ago, the main reason of the miracle is really going to transpire before us. Uh, We saw the one reason last week was not just to draw a crowd. I want to make sure that we separate that, that uh, God is not just exploiting someone's sickness, exploiting someone's bad situation so he can draw a crowd and show himself off. So a lot of times we might see that, you know, it's the miracle for this. God deeply loved that man. And we want to never make, we want to always make sure that we don't forget that God healed him, not just for his sake, but for the sake of the nation. And that God's going to now show a greater miracle through the resurrection of Christ and granting repentance to people. So we want to make sure that this God's not just drawing a crowd for a crowd's sake. God deeply loved this beggar, deeply loved him, met his needs. This man praised God for the first time in his entire existence. For 40 years, this man was married to the ground. He knew nothing but the ground. But worse than that, he didn't know anything of hope. He didn't know anything of joy. He didn't know anything of peace. He didn't know anything of praising God. So when he finally was healed and he jumped up and he leaped and he danced and he praised God, the great miracle was that his heart was praising God. That's the great miracle. We can get caught up in looking at things as uh, as the physical healing is the greatest healing. But really what really needs to be healed is the human heart. Amen. Because that's where all hopelessness comes from. Hopelessness comes from the human heart. It's full of sin. And when God removes that sin, then hope starts to come back into our life and praising of God. So I want to make sure that we see that here. But now he's going to show the higher love that he has for the nation. And that's what we're going to speak about tonight. So he's using uh, this gentleman to show us the great love that he had for the nation in their personal salvation. It says here in verse 11, While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in a portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at all this? Or why do you stare at us as though... By our own power or piety, we have made him walk. It was the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. He glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate, when he decided to release him. But you denied the holy and the righteous one, and asked for a murder to be granted to you. And you, you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. And to this we are all witnesses. And by his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see 
see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man his perfect health in the presence of you all. This once lame man is now fully healed. Healed in body and in heart. And he's praising God. For the first time he knows the, the joyful spontaneity of praising God. At that moment his affliction was gone. At that moment he knew nothing but God in his heart. Everything that ever weighed him down. And that's what salvation is. When someone comes to know salvation, nothing else matters. Nothing else is there. You are totally zeroed in on God and your heart belongs to him now. That's praise. That's what's taking place right before us. And all of a sudden this this draws a crowd. It draws the crowd's attention. A miracle has taken place and, and, and they're running together. This, this, is, this is a huge room. Solomon's portico was magnificent. There were three rows of 54 columns, 27 feet high, with this big cedar roof. It was a, a great amphitheater to preach in. It was magnificent. It's like walking to a, a, a stadium. And right there, this miracle takes place, and, and Peter sees something going on, and we have this crowd of devoted worshipers who were at prayer at that moment. They, they were devout worshipers of God, and, and, and they're seeing, and they're hearing this miracle. They're witnessing a miracle. But Peter sees a God-given opportunity. And, it, and I just want to take a moment here. When Peter and John were going up to the temple, understand something. They weren't going up to perform a miracle. Peter and John didn't walk around trying to perform miracles. They didn't wake up and say, you know something, let's go perform a miracle. They were doing something even more noble than that. They were going up to worship God. Amen. They were focused on Christ. They were going up to the temple to worship God. God affords them an opportunity. A man is healed. The man had faith. I'll speak about that in a little while. A crowd has gathered now. And Peter knows that this is a God-given opportunity to preach the gospel. To preach good news. To preach of the greater miracle. Of the salvation of the soul. And the forgiveness of sins. But first, he has to make sure that they know that the power to heal is found in Jesus and Jesus alone, not in themselves. And that's important. It's always been a common mistake to adore men who God uses, as opposed to adoring God who uses mere men. It's unfortunate that when the praise comes, some men don't know how to get out of the way and point it to where it really belongs. The object is God. But Peter and John knew this. And Peter corrects their mistaken ambition by explaining to them, this is Jesus, this is the ongoing ministry of Jesus Christ in his name. They didn't understand. They thought Jesus was gone, they thought he dead, he was crucified, he was buried, he's a criminal. But understand something, they couldn't get rid of Jesus. Jesus kept on coming back in the preaching. Jesus kept on coming back in the apostles. Jesus kept on coming back in the people. They could not rid Jerusalem of that name. That beautiful name of the Savior and his ongoing ministry. 
Peter, with absolute respect for them, he says, men of Israel now shows them who's behind the whole thing. The real miracle, the name of Jesus, was really God. This well-known formula of God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He really does point their awe. They're in awe of what's taken place. And he points their praise and he points their awe to the object, which is God. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of the nation, the God of their fathers, the God of their ancestors, but most of all, the God of the covenant. Now we're 2,000 years removed, and that might not mean much to us. But if you were a Jew 2,000 years ago, and you heard that the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob raised up his servant Jesus, you would understand they were talking about the God of the promise. What he's saying is God is faithful to his promises. That's what he's saying. The God who promised throughout his covenants, he made a promise to Abraham, he made a promise to Isaac, he made a promise to his grandson Jacob, and he's fulfilling the promise today. 2,000 years later, he made those promises. He's fulfilling his promises, because the promises of God are yea and amen. God is real. These worshipers were trapped all their life in dead Religion. That's hard. Some of us know what dead religion is. Some of us understand come out of certain mainstream uh, Christianity with rituals and ceremonies, but it was missing the presence of God. It was missing the reality of God. Something was missing. These true worshipers were trapped in a life of dead religion. Because the religious leaders were dead. There was nothing wrong with the religion. It was the religion of God. Judaism was a gift of God to the world. There was nothing wrong with Judaism. The leaders corrupted it. The leaders manipulated. The leaders led them astray. Nothing wrong with religion. It was God-given. It was revelation. There was no other true religion than the religion of Moses. But the leaders ruined it. And though they were dead, God wasn't dead. God is alive. Remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees? When they asked him about the resurrection, when the Sadducees came to Jesus and said, tell us about the resurrection. Because they didn't believe in the resurrection. And Jesus used this formula. And he said, the God of Abraham, he's the God of Isaac, he's the God of Jacob, he's the God of the living. He's not the God of the dead. They understood what Peter was saying here. God is alive, and this is the first time they experience the presence and the reality of God. But Peter here is he's caring for the people. This is a comforting formula. But he wants to be more faithful to God. He's more faithful to God than their personal feelings. And this is what he says. God glorified his servant Jesus whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. He could have went there and just sort of like caressed them and and feel good ceremonies and feel good sermons and meet their felt needs. But he doesn't. He calls them out on the carpet. 
you denied him, you delivered him over in the presence of Pilate, when he had decided, when Pilate had decided to release him, you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead, he says, and to this we are witnesses. He reminds them of what historically took place only several months before this, something the leaders were trying to play down. They don't want to believe in a resurrection which was God's commissioning of Jesus as his servant. That might not mean much to you, but what he said when he said he's your servant, he's God's servant, it means Judaism is over. It's over. 2,000 years of Judaism is now over. Moses is over. The law of God is over. It does not save. It's the new covenant and it's all on one person's shoulders. Jesus. The whole kingdom of God is summed up in one name. Jesus Christ. That's it. That's it. If anybody starts a sermon or finishes a sermon with anything else than the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not a Christian sermon. It's got to be Jesus in the middle, Jesus in the beginning, and Jesus at the end, and Jesus everywhere else. That's a Christian sermon. Nothing else. Jesus fulfills the law. Jesus did for you what you were supposed to do. Live perfect. Anybody live perfect? Jesus did it for you. You know what you were supposed to do? Die for your sins. For the wages of sin is this death. Guess who did that for you? Jesus did. He died the death I should have died. He lived the life I should have lived. Salvation is found in no other name but Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That is it. This is God's servant now. So me and you, we'll read that. We'll go right by it and glance over it and not think much of it. But God put all his eggs, guess where? One basket. basket. And that basket is Jesus. That is it. This is God's man now. There's a new man in town. It's not Moses. It's Jesus. Peter reminds him. Pilate was just about to release Jesus. If you go back into the Gospels, Pilate was just about to release him. And guess what they cried out? Crucify him. And that's what Peter's reminded. This crowd understands what's going on. Do you remember when Jesus caught the woman caught in adultery? And he just got down and he started writing. We don't know what he was writing, but starting with the older to the younger men, they all faded away. As their conscience got heavy, Jesus was saying something on the ground that made their conscience heavy. Please understand something. When Peter was calling them out and pointing them to their sin, they understood. They remembered the voice. They remembered the mob cry. Crucify him. Crucify him. They were in that crowd. And here's God coming back and offering them again more forgiveness. They rejected the son once. Peter's reminded him again. Peter's bringing it to their conscience. You ask for a murderer. This is the kind of preaching we need. 
This, this is the kind of preaching America needs. We need to be right back on track. We need to lay at the conscience of men that need to be saved. We need to remind them, if Peter was here today, he would say it was our sins that crucified him. Peter is Peter's basically saying this, you killed God's Christ. In no uncertain terms, that's what Peter is saying to this guilty crowd. You killed God's Christ. There could not have been a more insulting sermon ever preached than this one. This was as insulting of a sermon you could have told them. Maybe one other sermon was more insulting to this. When Jesus told the, the, uh, when Jesus told the crowd, you must eat of my blood, drink my blood, and eat of my flesh. That was insulting to a Jew. This is insulting. What an indictment Peter just made. There's probably no indictment ever made worse than this one. But yet he's respectful. He's fearless, but he's respectful. And then we see this great picture of Peter before the coming of the Holy Spirit, and Peter after the coming of the Holy Spirit. We see Peter running as a coward. Now we see him preaching with boldness and fire, with ice water in his veins. He's staring down the crowd that killed God. He's staring him down. He's 20 years old. He's not more than 20, 21. He's a kid filled with the Holy Spirit, looking at the religious leaders, looking at the whole nation, and reminding them of what they did. And guess what? He's doing it armed with one thing. The truth. Nothing else. No sword, no gun, no shield, no crowd. Just another apostle there. Armed with nothing but the truth. Please let me tell you now, Christian man and Christian woman. You don't need anything else but the truth. It's all you need. You don't have to dress it up. You don't have to take a little bit away. You don't have to make people feel. Just tell them the truth. If I remember right, what sets a man free? That is it. Peter lays it right down at their conscience. He lays it at their conscience of what they have done. And he reminds them of the name that healed this man. I mean, this is not a magic wand in the name of Jesus, stand up and be healed. This is, not, this is not a magic wand. When he uses the name of Jesus, understand something. What he's saying there, intrinsic in the name of Jesus is God's new covenant. It's God's new servant. It's not about the law anymore. It's not about Moses anymore. It's about faith, grace, and Christ. And that's it. That is it. God is establishing his new covenant through his son. These Jews had to know that. They were so wrapped up in Moses. They were so wrapped up in the Lord. They were so wrapped up in the Old Testament. They didn't even understand what it was all about. And now God is showing his power. Through these young men. In the middle of the temple. When the temple service was going on. And dead religion was going on. The real healing. The real miracle. The real religion was going on in Solomon's portico. With a bunch of kids. Healing people in the name of Jesus. 
What? What? It did. This is this is new wine in new wineskins. This is it. This is what Jesus says. You can't take new wine and put it into old wineskins. It's a whole new radical approach to God that God establishes, not the apostles. In the name of Jesus, it's about faith, not about law. It's about Jesus, it's not about Moses. This is a deep, deep trust. He has nothing. Peter has nothing but the name of Jesus. That's bold. And that should remind us, that's all we need. A deep understanding of the person of Christ as the Son of God, fully God, fully man, God's servant, that whatever we do for Jesus, God backs up now. I don't have to talk men into it. God backs up my preaching. I don't have to try to say, please listen to me. Please believe me you need to be saved. Please believe me. I don't have to do that. I used to do that as a young man. I scared people away. I did. I just tell them now, listen, God loves you. You really need to ask for forgiveness. You need to repent and follow Christ. That's what what you're missing. That's the truth. I trust in God the way Peter trusted in God. I trust in the name of Jesus the way Peter trusted in the name of Jesus. All true ministries, that's what we do now. We trust in God. It's the beginning of faith. The law of Moses is over. The new covenant has come. This was a radical, radical change taking place right there in the temple. The Jewish temple. Right there. That's where God decided to do it. God went right into the temple. He created an opportunity while John and Peter were going up to worship at the hour. And right there God says, now watch what I'm going to do. This temple belongs to me, not to the Jewish leaders. This temple is my temple, not the Pharisees. This temple is my temple, not the people who crucified my son. I'll show you who's God. God is establishing his son. We also have the faith of the beggar. Don't want to miss this. It's a beautiful part of the story. This man heard in faith. And here's the beautiful thing about faith. Trust And God and Jesus Christ came spontaneously. They didn't have a long time to discuss the scriptures. Didn't have a long time to say, let me tell you all about Jesus. That's the gift of God. Let me tell you something. There's no sweeter name than the name of Jesus. Nothing speaks to the soul Like the name of Jesus. Nothing will comfort you in the middle of the night. When everything's going wrong. And you just say Jesus. 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 No temptation can come over against the name of Jesus. Hopelessness cannot come against the name of Jesus. Fear cannot compete with the name of Jesus. Nothing can compete with the name of Jesus. When the saint is uttering it from the lips of his mouth. Anyone who's a Christian long enough knows the power of the name of Jesus. It's in his name. This man was there. He showed up. He wasn't saying, well, maybe today I'm going to be Jesus. 
Maybe today's the day I'm going to have my sins forgiven. No. He was showing up, doing what he was doing since he was a child, married to the floor, carried to the temple, get his arms, wake up, do it again, do it again, do it again. One decade, two decades, three decades, four decades. He showed up like any other day and instantaneously he heard the name of Jesus and faith was birthed in his heart. Amen. That's the way it works. When I got saved, I came to church. I wasn't like, you know, something. I'm going to come to church with you today. I need a new life. I need a new life. No, I want you to know, when I came to church, life was good. I was doing well. But when I came that day and I heard the name of Jesus, I realized I have everything but God in my life. On that day, instantaneously, God birthed faith. Faith is a gift from God. Ephesians 2.8. It's a gift. It's a gift. Saving faith, the faith that really sees Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior who died for our sins, and you say yes to that, it's a gift from God. And nobody else gave you. You weren't born with that. God gave it. That's right. Somewhere in your life, God gave you saving faith. He gave me saving faith. He gave this man faith. Just talk about Jesus and watch what God can do. I mean, I can look around this room and I can—I know people just from speaking about the name. I'm not going to call people out. Just speaking about the name of Jesus in the gym, on the phone, on the golf course. It changes lives. He goes on to say this. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as did also your rulers. Peter's very sensitive here. He's pastoral. He's using wisdom over here. He knows they were caught up in a mob mentality. It was chaos. The leaders were going around the crowd and saying, no, tell them we want Barabbas. And they got caught up in the mob mentality. Of course, not all of them were ignorant. Jesus rebuked many of the leaders for seeing the miracles. And, and, and John's been speaking out of the book of John. We're going to see more of it in his next son. And John 11. He, they, they tried to kill Christ. They knew he was God. They knew it. They weren't ignorant. But on a whole, Peter knows that most of the leaders and most of the crowd were in ignorance. They just had no understanding. They had no understanding at all. They all got caught up in the mob mentality. But he says, but what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Peter begins to present the saving message of Jesus from God's perspective. And that's important because nothing in your life, nothing in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, ever catches God off God. I'm going to tell you right now, no matter what is taking place in your life right now, nothing has taken God off God. He knows exactly what's taking place. He knows exactly what was taking place then. These Jews had to come face to face with biblical truth. They heard the Old Testament over and over and over again. For Peter to say, the prophets bear witness to this. They understood in the temple, every Sabbath, they would read the law. They would read the prophets. They would go through the Old Testament. 52 weeks out of the year, they would go through. It took three years in the synagogue, in the temple back then, to go through the whole Old Testament. They would read great big portions of it. So every three years, they would hear 
the whole Old Testament preached over and over and over. By the time somebody was 30 or 40 years old, they heard it dozens of times. And remember something, they had a keen memory. They understood. They understood what Peter was saying. But remember what Jesus did to his disciples on the road to Emmaus? When they felt downcast? And Jesus went up to them and said, why are you so downcast? They said, didn't you hear what happened? They crucified the Messiah. And then Jesus said, but you're slow to heart to believe all that the scriptures have told you. Was it not prophesied that the Christ had to suffer first and then enter into his glory? Don't you see? We can read our Bibles, but we can be slow to heart to believe in everything the Bible says. We like to cherry pick. Oh, that's not, that makes me feel good. And that one's good, and that, that's good. But we're slow to heart. We're still slow to heart to believe in everything the scriptures have said. They understood what Peter was saying. They had to relearn their own Bible. The prophets wrote about it in many places. He says to them, Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed to you, namely Jesus. Think about this. Peter's in the temple, not just on any day. It's at prayer. People who went to prayer were devoted. In the middle of their religious service, Jesus is telling the religious people to repent. He's not in the crack house. He's not in the, in, in the whore house. Or gentleman's club, I'm sorry. He's not in the gentleman's club. He's not, he's not talking to drunkards. He's talking to nice people. Right in the middle of their church service. He's telling them to repent. Namely this. You rejected Christ. That was their sin they had to contend with. You know, most of us, when we come to Christ, have to contend with a sin. Usually something, when someone's coming to the Lord, there's something there that's the one thing. There's a thousand things, but there's usually one thing there that God is bringing to our attention, bringing to our remembrance. You have to repent. He says, turn back towards God. How do you tell people that think they were always with God to turn back towards God? There's only one way. You've got to show them their sin, which Peter did faithfully in the rejection of Christ. These people never thought they were not with God. That's why you have to be prepared with the truth. You have to be able to lay the truth at people's conscience. Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. He's not... Deceived by their false goodness, he sees their true spiritual state. They need to own up to their personal sin. Then to a call of repentance, Peter encourages them with something. With the love of God. This is not about making people feel bad about their sin. It's not making people feel bad about their their crucifixion of Christ. This is all said so you can point them to the love of God. Which Peter calls here, times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. He's encouraging them now. You have 
have to lay down the law before you can understand grace. People are singing about grace. People are preaching about grace. People are talking about grace. But they don't need, they don't understand their need for grace. Grace is a need. It's a gift that comes by understanding our need. And that's our call to repentance. Understand something. It's like you're getting, like Novocaine. You know when you get Novocaine? You know, you see that big needle coming. And then that rotten needle and the doctor has that sinister look on his face, you know. And it's not going to hurt. But you know it hurts. And he's coming with, that's the law. That's the law. But inside the law is what you and I need. That's the medication is grace. And grace is administered through the law. That's how we receive it. It's a needle that carries the medication. The law carries the need of grace. We can't be ashamed to tell people their need to repent and come to Christ. Because that alone qualifies me now to tell people about the love of God. That's what qualifies us. That's how we receive the love of God. We see our need. We see our personal need. Times of refreshing. A clear conscience. No shame, no guilt, no running from God anymore. Nothing to be ashamed about. Everything's on the table. God wipes the slate clean. He blots out every transgression, every known transgression, every concealed transgression. All the secret little sins we carried around all our life thinking nobody knows about it. Understand something, God knows it. All wiped away, made clean, all in one time. Brand new, spiritually renewed, and alive for the first time ever. That's what it means to be born again. That's what it means to be saved. You feel for the first time, I am truly alive. Times of refreshment. And not just that. It's times of refreshment from the presence of the Lord. God backs up his own word. When someone generally repents, I don't have to come over to your life and say, you know something? I think you're saved. You'll know you're saved. I won't have to say a word. I sit back and hear people say, Brian, I just love God. It's about God now. Now I know it's about God. And you feel his nearness. His comforting in every aspect of life. It makes life tolerable. It makes the hard times tolerable. It makes hard times doable. It makes hopeless times hopeful. Anxious times peaceful. In all these different seasons, and that's what times means. It means seasons of refreshing. These times throughout our whole life, God is constantly renewing us and doing fresh new things in us. And we'll constantly feel close to Him that no matter what life throws at us, I'm close to God. And my soul knows Times of refreshing come from the presence of the Lord. But he says something else. And we'll close. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed to you. Jesus. That's the second coming. He just spoke about the first coming that comes from the presence of the Lord, the crucifixion and the resurrection. Now all of a sudden he's talking about 
the second coming of Christ. That's where our hope comes from. Mercy and grace and peace come from what God did at the cross. No more regret. No more shame. No more guilt. But hope comes because of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And that's how the Christian lives. We don't live with guilt. We don't live with regret. We don't live with shame. We don't live with fear anymore. Christ took it all on the cross. Our mind is straight ahead. And we're looking for the second coming of Christ. And that's our life right now as a Christian. That's where contentment comes from. My past is fully done over with. And now i got a full future and hopeful life with Jesus. And I'm waiting for his second coming. Whether he comes here or I go there. That's our life. That's our life. And wherever we are in our life, we have the presence of the Lord to back it up. More is going to be said on this later. Let me just give you a couple of applications as we go on. Peter is quick to deflect the praise that they try to give him and point it right to Christ. Our whole life has to be a reflection of God. No matter what we do, people have to sooner or later understand it's not us. It's God in us. The glory goes to Jesus Christ. We've got to be constantly aware that people don't praise us for anything. Amen. We don't let our left hand know what our right hand is doing. Everything we do, we are a reflection of God. And we've got to make sure God gets all the glory. Yes. Two, like Peter, all ministers must be respect, respectful to all, all people. But we never sugarcoat the truth. Ever, ever, ever sugarcoat it. we got to speak fearlessly and uncompromising as we respect people created in the image of God as we lay at the foot of their conscience their need to repent and to come to Christ. we got to be faithful to that at all times. And three, the Jews had to relearn the scriptures. They had to relearn they had to relearn that the whole Old Testament pointed to Christ. They had to see it. Someone had to show them that. And many of us come in all of all sorts of mainstream uh, Protestantism and Catholicism. We come out of this stuff and we have a shell. They gave us a shell. A mere shell. It's like a stick figure Jesus. That's what we got growing up. A stick figure Jesus. And then when you come to Christ and you're truly born again and then... God starts to put flesh and bone and understanding on Christ. And we too, like the Jews, have to relearn Christianity from the ground up. That our salvation is based on nothing more than what Christ did at the cross. It's free. Eternal life is free. Forgiveness is free. You can never earn it. We'll never be good enough to earn it. It's a gift. It's full and free. And it's yours in Jesus Christ. And I'll close with this last one. Something I truly believe is missing a lot of Christians' life. At least their understanding. Is the presence of God in your life. You know when I text and I email everybody, at the end they always say, enjoy Christ. Is the presence of God in your life? Times of refreshing come from the presence of the Lord. You can be at church and have the presence of the Lord. 
You could be in the gym, on the treadmill, have the presence of the Lord. You could be on the subway station, have the presence of the Lord. You could be in a traffic jam, and this I need to practice this a little more. Presence of the Lord. You could be anywhere at any time, and you can have the presence. That's the great New Testament blessing. No materialistic things. God's going to give you this, and God's going to give you that. I have everything I need. I have the presence of the Lord. I don't need the, I don't need a new land flowing with milk and honey. I have the pre- they didn't have the presence of the Lord. Do you understand that? The Jews didn't have that. They had a temple. They had Palestine. They had this. They had other goodies, but they didn't have the presence of the Lord. I ask you this, Christians: Are you enjoying Christ? Yes. Are you enjoying your forgiveness? Are you enjoying the presence of the Holy Spirit? Are you enjoying the truth when you read the scriptures? Are you enjoying singing? Are you enjoying the music? Are you enjoying fellowship? Are you enjoying friendship? Are you enjoying calling up someone and saying, can I talk to you, man? I'm struggling with something in my life. I need to confess something. Are you enjoying that? Are you enjoying being honest and transparent? Are you enjoying telling people, you know, I'm sorry, I've hurt you? Are you enjoying getting right with people? Are you enjoying being right with other human beings? Are you enjoying being honest? Are you enjoying walking in integrity? Are you enjoying when there's no one else around you making all the right choices for God? That's how you enjoy Jesus. That's how you enjoy the presence of God. Father, we thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for what you're always doing, God. Help us, Father God, to enjoy your presence. Let us enjoy times of refreshing that come from the presence of the Lord. I thank you for all the faithful men in my life that have brought me to you, Father God, over so many years, God, until that name meant so much to me. Just at the name of Jesus, my soul was finally satisfied. In Jesus' name.